Welcome to season two of A Thought for Food. If you listened to the last season of this series, and I hope you did, you'll remember that we started by eating a meal and talking about how it traveled through your digestive tract and what the nutritional implications of that particular meal were. For the rest of the series, we veered away from that and instead devoted individual episodes to some of the most important nutrients in our diet, vitamins, fats, sugars, and so forth. For this season, we thought it would be interesting to take a meal and really break it down, spend the whole season examining the nutrition and history and social importance of the different elements that make up a single plate of food. But what meal should we choose? We wanted to pick something that everyone, or at least almost everyone, who might be listening to this series would have eaten at one time or another. The series is produced in the USA, so we wanted to pick a meal that's a staple of American cuisine and, if possible, one that's also popular worldwide. So, it's a cliché and a stereotype, but when you get down to numbers, it's hard to argue that America's quintessential meal, and one of its leading exports to the rest of the world, is the hamburger. In 1997, The Economist estimated that the average American eats three hamburgers every week. If that number hasn't changed, and we use the latest population estimate from the U.S. Census Bureau, adjusted for the 4% or so of the population that claim to be vegetarians, Americans consume an average of somewhere around 46 billion hamburgers every year. That's billion with a B. Sound ridiculous? Well, in 2009, McDonald's told CBS News that they sell 550 million Big Macs every year just in the U.S., and that's just one of a dozen different burgers sold at one fast food chain. I defy you to find a city, town, or highway rest stop anywhere in this country that you can't go buy a burger right now, whatever time you're listening to this. So, over the course of the next six episodes, we'll take one of the most popular presentations of this all-American dish, a cheeseburger with french fries, ketchup, and a pickle, and dissect each element of that meal to learn what it is, what it's made of, and where it comes from. This is episode eight of A Thought for Food, a special series within the Science in the City podcasts, produced by the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science at the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, David Hoffman. Episode eight, Meet the Meat. There's an important trend right now in the world of nutrition science. The idea that nutrition needs to be understood holistically. Historically, nutrition has really been a branch of biochemistry. What are the important chemicals or nutrients for sustaining human life and health? How are they metabolized in the body? How much of each of them do we need? And what are the best sources of them? Lately though, the thinking of the nutrition science community has very much expanded with the realization that questions about what foods are available to different populations and why, and why people choose to eat one food rather than another, are as important to understanding human nutrition as the basic biology of nutrients is. So fields as diverse as psychology, agriculture, anthropology, history, economics, and marketing have all become crucial to the conversation. And it turns out that our cheeseburger was a very good choice of a subject for examination. It's downright amazing how many different scientific concepts and how much of American and world history we're going to have to touch on in analyzing what is just, let's face it, a sandwich. 
Today's episode is going to be organized around six seemingly unrelated historical factors that all collided in a very specific time and a very specific place to allow this very American sandwich with an oddly German name to be invented and allow that invention to spread and grow into nothing less than a global cultural juggernaut. The place is the city of Chicago, Illinois, and the time is right around 1890. As with so many American stories, the first of these factors is immigration. To begin with, we need to understand that the hamburger didn't begin as a sandwich. It began as what was called a Hamburg steak, which was a patty made of shredded beef that you ate with a knife and fork. It was named after the city of Hamburg, Germany, because it was introduced to the U.S. by German immigrants. Here's Andrew Smith, who teaches at the New School University here in New York and has written many books about food history. Well, Hamburg has a really wonderful uh, beef industry in, in the 18th century, and it, its beef was thought of very positively by Europeans. And it is absolutely true that the first evidence that we have of hamburgers in America was in restaurants that are run by Germans and they're serving hamburger steak. And it's a low-cost item that appears on restaurants that would have been appealing to German immigrants coming into America. The reason this was an inexpensive dish, and therefore popular in restaurants catering to working-class immigrants, has to do with our second factor. The way an enormous animal like a cow, which can weigh up to a thousand pounds or even more, is broken down into pieces that are small enough for someone to cook and serve, and the way these pieces are marketed for sale. These are the components of the ancient art of butchery. To learn a little bit about it, I visited Jake Elmitz, the head butcher at the Green Great Provisions in the Fort Greene neighborhood of Brooklyn, New York. So this is the um, hind leg, or uh, round, of a 710-pound steer. What he had up on his board while we talked was an entire back leg of a cow, which is referred to as a round of beef. The round is one of several what are called primal cuts, which are the large pieces the slaughterhouse delivers to a butcher after an animal is killed, skinned, gutted, and drained of blood. Along with the front leg, or chuck, the round is one of the two primals that is most associated with producing ground beef. In this case, ground round. This, this piece probably weighs 75 pounds or so. And just, just, to, just to give people a visual, it's been cut off sort of right at the hip, right? right. It's cut right, uh, right below your butt on a diagonal with the inside of your thigh. Now, the way Jake works with these primal cuts is the same way butchers have been doing it for centuries, taking it apart so as to isolate individual muscle groups. He does this by hand with what looks like a normal 8-inch kitchen knife and with surprising delicacy. So we can, we can start um, at, at the bottom, at the shank, or we can start at the pelvic bone. Um, I was trained, and, and um, I like teaching people to start at the shank and move upwards. So we're going to first detach the heel tendon, or the Achilles heel, on humans. Uh. So you started, you actually just took that Achilles tendon. Yep. And slice it right in half. Yep. And now, and now you're trimming away a piece. So now I'm exposing the seam up from the shank uh, into the knee, and I'm gonna get my knife in between the knee joint um, that separates uh, the shank or shin from the femur bone or thigh bone. 
So it, is, it really is all the same basic parts as on a person. Some minor differences, just because we stand upright and ruminant animals are on all fours, but um, it's pretty much the same thing. Jake proceeds very gently to find the seams between these large muscle groups in the animal's leg, separating each one out to become a different cut that he displays in cells. The reason all these cuts are separated out so carefully is that they're best cooked in different ways, some fast with high dry heat like grilling a steak, and some slowly in liquid like a stew or a pot roast. This is because these were all working muscles for the animal when it was alive, and depending on where they are on the animal and what function they're going to serve, the muscles develop differently and therefore have different qualities, which translate as different textures and flavors when we eat them. To understand this, Let's take a step back and ask a couple of more basic questions. What is a muscle, and how does it work? To help answer, here's Dr. Joe Muscolino. He's a chiropractor and kinesiologist who's written several popular textbooks about muscle structure and function. If you take a typical muscle, a muscle is effectively a structure that goes from bone A to bone B and crosses the joint between the two bones. Inside the muscle, there are thousands of muscle cells, and they're called muscle fibers because they're long, thin things. If you then go down inside and you look down inside of a muscle fiber, you will see that it's composed of what's called myofibrils. If you then break down a myofibril and you look at it, you will see that it's made up of consecutive units of something called sarcomeres. To give a sense of perspective here, you can fit 10,000 sarcomeres laid end-to-end in one inch. Then a sarcomere is made up of these protein filaments that are called actin and myosin. When a muscle's relaxed, there is a space between the myosin heads and the actin filaments. When the impulse, the directive for contraction occurs from the nervous system, the heads grab onto the actin filaments and create a pulling force toward the center of the sarcomere. That would mean that the sarcomere shortened. If enough of them shorten, the muscle shortens and the muscle pulls on its tendons. The tendons are the fibrous fascial tissue that attaches the muscle to a bone on one side and a bone on the other side. Now, as we said, a person or a cow or any animal develops different types of muscles to perform different tasks. Generally speaking, these fall into two groups, fast twitch muscles that are good at making short, sudden, rapid motions, and slow twitch muscles that are better at long, slow, stabilizing type actions. In people and in cows, there tends to be more fast twitch muscle in the limbs and out closer to the skin, and more slow twitch in the torso and deeper in closer to the bones. Because the inner ones, their job is more to stabilize a bone at a joint, while other muscles move and contract and move you, take a break, move you again, take a break. Meanwhile, the inner stabilizer muscles, core stabilizer muscles, they're the ones that have to be able to hold the posture of the joint for long periods of time. In the human body, we tend to have roughly equal amounts of both of these types because we do both of these things in roughly equal proportions. We have to be able to run and also to stand still. Your average cow, though, has a somewhat different lifestyle, and its musculature has developed to match. To learn about the daily life of beef cattle, 
I visited Lee Ranny at Kinderhook Farm just outside Ghent, New York. His is one of the farms where the beef Jake sells in his shop originally comes from. This is a basic social cow herd group doing what cows have been designed to do. The bull is finding the cow that's in heat to breed. They go through a ritual um, until she's really ready. She won't let him uh, breed her. We've rolled out two bales of hay here this morning. You can see they've eaten most of it, but they'll just pick away at it. And the calves are kind of just hanging out. They'll eat a little bit. They'll go over and nurse mom once in a while. You can see this calf nursing right here. And uh, uh, it's perfect weather. It's not, it's not real hot. They don't have flies like when it's hot. They're not overheated and stressed. They're not consuming much nutrition just to stay warm. I mean, this, this is about as good as it gets for cows and farmers. It's interesting that he chose the phrase, what they have been designed to do. Because really, the cow as we know it is a human invention. And this is the third of our historical factors, the centuries of directed breeding that created the modern cow. There originally were such things as wild cattle, of course. Going back at least two million years, there existed a wild bovine called the aurochs. It seems to have started out in India and then later migrated to Europe, where it became one of the dominant species, equivalent in importance maybe to wild bison in pre-Columbian America. And aurochs looked a bit like what we think of as a cow, but it was taller, stronger, could run much faster, and had enormous sharp horns. It seems to have been a ferocious creature, and it was hunted but also feared by ancient people. A good analogy to the difference between a cow and an aurochs is the difference between a dog and a wolf. And cows and dogs evolved from their wild counterparts in the same way. They did it because they were selectively bred by people to have the traits we wanted them to. In both cases, to be smaller, friendlier, and easier to control. And, just like with dogs, over the centuries we've developed many different subspecies, or breeds, of cow that have specific qualities that make them better suited to live in different parts of the world, or more or less useful for different tasks, like giving lots of milk or pulling a plow. This selection is very much an ongoing process. Well, we've had to adapt our, our livestock to our farming environment. It's not exactly the same as the longhorn cattle out west. We had unlimited land and uh, cattle that had to survive drought and, and wolves, and now we're trying to raise them in places like this with uh, people in their Suburbans and SUVs going by, and we got to keep them fenced in, and you have to adapt your cattle to your environment, and they have to thrive in your environment. A good portion of any cattle farmer's time is spent making decisions about how and when to breed the next generation of his or her herd to be better than the current one. Breeding the right groups of animals to make calves that are more docile, easier to breed, and more productive. Lee does this the old-fashioned way, by raising bulls, meaning boy cattle, as well as cows, which, technically speaking, should only refer to sexually mature female cattle. On his farm, you'll also find calves, which are young cattle, heifers, which are cows that have not yet given birth to a calf, and steers, which are adult male cattle that have been castrated. It's the heifers and steers that are most desirable to sell for meat. 
Anyway, Lee will very carefully choose which bulls and cows in his herd he will allow the opportunity to mate with each other, with the idea of controlling some of the qualities that will appear in their calves. For many farmers, though, modern technology allows for even more control over this process, and the choice between many, many different bulls from all over the country to breed their cows with, via artificial insemination. Here's Ben Freund, a dairy farmer in East Canaan, Connecticut, showing me a catalog of hundreds of different bulls whose semen he could order to impregnate his cows with. We're here to the list of bulls. See, the, the way they sell them to farmers is that, wow, look what a great cow will come out of that bull. But they have, they have all kinds of philosophies. So this is actually the stats oh, yeah, on they, the bulls that produce that semen. Right, and, and, and it's, it's, it's very, there's a lot, there's a lot of generation of, of information that gets condensed into these little charts. You have a cow that has an udder that maybe you don't like what it looks like. Maybe the teat placement is a little bit odd and you want to get it so that the machine can go on a little easier and you know that's a weakness. So that might be her primary weakness. So you're going to go over there and you're going to look for udder and you can go for placement and they have scores of each things. And what they do is they evaluate each sire based on his daughter's performance. So they go in there and they also evaluate her for physical traits. So that that's how we get uh, you know, the, these charts and that's how we select which sire we'd breed a particular cow to. For a dairy cow, the primary quality you're breeding for is obvious. You want cows that produce a lot of milk. For beef cattle, it's more subtle, but just as important. You want animals with a body that is shaped in the right way to produce the most and the most tasty meat. Here's Lee again showing off some of his herd. Um, this is a nice profile of a, of, a, of a good beef animal right here. Her back is pretty straight. She's got nice fat cover over the tail head. That's one of the first places you look to tell if they're carrying good body condition. And you don't see a lot of bones sticking out. Uh, that means she's got good, good fat cover over all of her, which means she's healthy, which means she'll winter well. She'll be nice and warm in the winter. Now, the end result of all of that selective breeding was to turn the ferocious, fast-moving aurochs into an animal that spends a huge amount of its time standing around and chewing. That's pretty much all they do all day. When they're not sleeping, cows are either eating or chewing their cud, which is when they regurgitate their partially digested food, chew it again, and then swallow it to be digested a second time in a separate stomach. This process allows them to eat something, thrive on something, that most mammals can't get nutrition from at all grass. And this is very probably why we as a species chose to domesticate cows in the first place. Because a cow is an efficient way of turning something that we can get almost no nutrition from into things that we can get a lot of nutrition from, meat and milk. Another result of all this breeding is that modern cattle have relatively little fast twitch muscle because they don't need it. They don't run or make sudden movements, they just stand around eating. Now, if you remember, one of the terms Dr. Muscolino used to refer to slow-twitch muscle fiber is oxidated muscle fiber. This is because it requires more oxygen than the fast-twitch kind, and therefore more blood to carry that oxygen to it. This is why red meat is red, because the muscles of cows and sheep are more heavily oxidated than the muscles of chickens or pigs, which have a higher percentage of fast-twitch fibers. Even within a cow, though, 
there are differences in the fast-twitch, slow-twitch percentages in different muscle groups. The muscles the animal uses for moving around, i.e. the muscles in its legs, are more fast-twitch than its core muscles, which are just for stability. There are also more joints in the legs, and therefore more tendons and other kinds of connective tissues, and less fat, which is mostly stored in the animal's torso. All of these things add up to make the meat from some parts of the cow less tender than others. Which is why butchers like Jake separate out the muscles into different cuts in their case. The more tender parts, like the loin, which comes out of the dead center of the animal, can be cooked more quickly than the tougher, less expensive cuts off the round or the chuck. These are traditionally cooked slowly for a long time to break down all of the connective tissue and all of those fast-twitch fibers so they become tender. Another way, though, to make tough cuts of beef tender is to grind them. And there's another huge economic advantage to grinding meat. It allows you to make an attractive retail product out of what are basically scraps, the pieces of meat that are left over after you carve out the more expensive steaks and roasts. This is very probably why the hamburger sandwich first appeared in Chicago, which was the center of American meatpacking. Here's our historian, Andy Smith, again. The first primary source evidence that we have is uh, 1893 in Chicago, which is not at all surprising. That is where the slaughterhouse industry uh, focused at that point. And these, I mean, they had beef, which they would then slaughter, and then they would transport it elsewhere. And they had all this junk that's left over, which included scraps of beef, fat, uh, organ meat that wasn't consumed. And you had to do something with it. And the last thing you want to do is throw it out. So they began to make hamburger out of all those scraps and leftovers. There's no organ meat in the recipe anymore, but the concept is still the same, even in a fancy butcher shop like Jake's. Ground beef is a way to make sure you're selling every last bit of meat off those large primal cuts without wasting any. Since we retail the whole animal, we, we sell most of the full muscles, so mo most of our stuff, uh, most of our grind comes from trim, and there's there's some connective muscles in here that are not sort of a brand name muscle that definitely get ground. Um, and the advantage to that is you get a lot of different uh, parts of the animal coming together. So you have a lot of different flavors, a lot of different textures um, and variations in color. So we've gotten very close now to what we think of as a hamburger. We've domesticated and selectively bred modern cattle and learned through thousands of years of butchery that there are more and less tender cuts of beef, and discovered that shredding beef and serving it as a patty is a way to make an inexpensive meal out of the tougher and less desirable of those cuts. But we're still not quite there. There were three technical advances that coincidentally all came together in Chicago in the 1890s that allowed the Hamburg steak to turn into the hamburger sandwich as we know it. The first was the invention of the rotary meat grinder, which is what really made ground beef an inexpensive and readily available ingredient. Try to, try to scrape off meat without a grinder, and all I can do is tell you it is a difficult and, and uh, time-consuming and muscle-stressing activity. Once you get the commercial meat grinder, which doesn't come online until the 1880s, 1890s, uh, you really aren't going to have what you can, you can't make what you think of as the hamburger today until that's online. 
Aside from adding a motor so you don't have to crank it by hand, it's a technology that hasn't changed at all in 120 years. Our butcher friend will demonstrate. So there's a hopper which feeds the beef in. There's the motor which is the big box. Um, and then the actual grinding mechanism is the housing that houses uh, sort of a coarse feeding blade, a blade that chops the meat and then an extruding die, which determines the coarseness or fineness of the grind. So now we're gonna grind some beef. factor might seem to come out of left field, but without it, there would be no hamburger as we know it. And that is the invention of the assembly line. Not an assembly line to make hamburgers, but one to make customers for hamburgers. Because the hamburger sandwich is 100% a product of the Industrial Revolution. Until people worked in factories and on strict factory clocks, the usual thing was to go home for lunch. If you're a farmer, or a craftsman living above his shop, this is no problem. But if you're commuting 45 minutes or an hour each way from your house to a factory, and then you have a half hour lunch break, unless your company happens to have a cafeteria, your food options become pretty limited. And also you have businesses operating 24 hours a day. I mean, today you think of as nine to five, but the nine to five wasn't, wasn't the way many businesses operated in the late 19th century. And so consequently, if you're hungry and you're on the midnight shift, what are you gonna eat? For a lot of people, the answer was street food. Which brings us to the sixth and last crucial factor in our hamburger creation story. The invention of a kind of portable griddle that allowed street vendors to make fresh cooked food out of a pushcart. Uh, you have then a shift in street vendors. The street vendors go from a, a vending uh, operation that was simply um, had, had no had no way to heat anything and simply was available there um, to one of which actually had a grill and that happens also in 1893 and so in Chicago you have street vendors coming along that they're able to cook something but unlike in a restaurant where you could uh, eat the Hamburg steak with a knife and a fork they had to have something else because you can't sit down on the outside of a street vendor so therefore they put a bun on the outside so that is the real beginning of what we think of as the American hamburger and, uh, and so that's that's the original thing from that within a very short period of time it spread throughout America and it was a street food that was served by vendors and only later did restaurants pick it up and begin to use it in between there came along sort of a pushcart restaurant hybrid where you can order from a guy with a griddle who's making inexpensive food as quickly as he can, but there's also a place to sit down and a roof over your head. And voila, the birth of the American fast food chain, which from the beginning was centered around hamburgers. White Castle, which is the first national chain, uh, will open their operations immediately outside factories. They will open 24 hours a day, and they really make their money, not not at the lunch hour, as you would think, but on the other shift's lunch hour during the night, and when it would be the only places that would be open. So there's lots of different things that are happening in America in the 1890s that will create this, um, this product that becomes the iconic food of America. 
And so there you have it. In examining our humble cheeseburger, we've so far gone from Paleolithic monsters, through the Industrial Revolution, all the way to artificial insemination, and we are just getting warmed up. For one thing, there's a lot more to say about beef, and we're going to get to more of it later in this series. But first, in the next episode, let's reapproach our burger. Start from the outside, with the stuff that makes a sandwich a sandwich. One of the most ordinary and fundamental food products worldwide that also happens to be one of the most creative, important, and downright weird things humanity has ever invented. The other way we figured out how to eat grass. Bread. Special thanks to our experts in this episode. Andrew Smith, Jake Elmitz, Joe Muscolino, Lee Ranny, and Ben Freund. This podcast was a production of Science and the City and the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science, not-for-profit programs of the New York Academy of Sciences. To learn more about the Sackler Institute, please visit us on the web at nyas.org slash whatwedo slash nutrition, on the Sackler Institute group on LinkedIn, and on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Sackler Nutrition Science, where you can see photo galleries to our visits to some of the places we feature in this episode, including the butcher shop at the Green Grape Provision, Kinderhook Farm, and Freund's Dairy Farm. And please feel free to give us your feedback on this or any Science in the City program via email to scienceandthecity at nyas.org.